You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Meaning of Life TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is B.D. McClay. Uh, B.D., can you <laughs> introduce yourself? I'm uh, the, the senior editor at the Hedgehog Review, which is a, a journal that comes out three times a year, um, published by the Institute in Advanced Studies in Culture um, and associated with the University of Virginia. Uh, I also do a fair bit of freelance writing, mostly books and uh, pieces that are about religion. Um for Commonweal, uh, lately I've written for The Outline and The Baffler, just many in various places. Um, uh, well, thanks for uh, coming on today. So we're going to be talking about a couple pieces that you've written recently, and then maybe a one or two more uh, random fun topics towards the end. We'll to see how how much time we have left but but the first topic the first um piece we're gonna discuss uh ran in the hedgehog review uh titled the ills that flesh is heir to uh great mm -hmm. title um and the subhead is what if our weakness were the best part of us so this is you know an inter interesting essay it's a essay it's a personal essay um and also an essay of ideas and um uh review of they're kind of looking at um, historical events from long ago and things that I, I really didn't know about, about the, the Gnostics. Um, mm -hmm. But why don't we st kind of start, I guess, where you start in the piece is how you um, you felt ill and you kind of yeah. what happened from there. So the piece very much, um, the, basically what happened was that I had agreed to review Elaine Pagels' newest book for the American scholar. And so I was reading her back catalog and some other books. Um, and the Gnostic gospels, which is her big book is like 200 pages long. And I just couldn't get through it. And I thought, this is really weird. I can't read this at all. Um, and, uh, I took a couple days off work because I wasn't feeling well still feeling bad. I went to the doctor uh, and uh, the doctor was sure that I had the flu. No, wait. What did he think I had? Tonsillitis. He thought I had mm -hmm. tonsillitis. Um, and uh, my mother had this idea that what I have was mononucleosis, um, which seemed wildly unlikely but I made the doctor test me for it because I knew that if I didn't, I would like get in touch with my mom and she'd be like, did you talk to him about mononucleosis? And I do. Um, <laughs> my, my mom is the same way with strep throat. Yeah. She, she always, any cold, she thinks it's like, okay, we got to get tested for strep throat. Yeah. Now strep throat, I actually had this whole weird paranoia around because I think when I was a kid, there was this like children's story or something where a guy's wife gets strep throat and then it becomes rheumatic fever and then she dies suddenly. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but, um, anyway, uh, and the doctor really didn't even want to test me, uh, for mononucleosis. Uh, he was this very young, very cheerful, very broy guy. Uh, but he, you know, I insisted and he was like, all right, I'm going to test this and I'm going to come back in a few minutes and it's going to be negative and you're going to leave antibiotics. 
then he came back and I did have mononucleosis. This whole like drama is, is <laughs> outlined in the, the piece. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know if you have ever had this disease. I, ha- I have not. And I have to say, I didn't really know a lot about it besides like, it's the kissing disease and like yeah. and just in pop culture, it seemed like the idea was, Oh, you get to like, you know, get off school and like, like sleep for a month or something. And it's like, Oh, he's, he, this kid has mono. Like that's kind of cool. He yeah. To go to school. Uh, and he kissed somebody. So like, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, no. And, um, mononucleosis is actually one of these weird diseases that is basically, um, a rich person's disease. Uh, the virus is not, but um, in a lot of countries, basically what makes mono so bad is your immune system's response to the virus. Um, and when you're, say, a baby and have no immune system to speak of, it can just sort of peacefully infect you and it doesn't really matter. Hmm. Um, and in many countries, people just are exposed to Epstein-Barr, which is the mononucleosis virus, when they're really young. Um, something kind of similar happens with polio, where the kind of polio fever that produces paralysis and so on um, is both during polio's heyday and now, I guess, among communities that don't vaccinate, uh, it, it targets rich children. Specifically, because um, they're the ones who are least likely to be exposed to it when it actually can't harm them that much. So anyway, uh, um, but yeah, basically, you you do sleep for a month, but also your your tonsils swell up to uh, a truly terrifying size. Uh, you have no energy, but swallowing is incredibly painful, so you can't really fall asleep either. Um, and uh, yeah, and you have some very vivid um, <laughs> descriptions of what it's like to swallow things um, <laughs> while yeah. under this ailment, and yeah, it makes it makes you um, reconsider maybe previous your previous ideas yeah. about about what mono is. Um, I mean, it, it sounds like tor- you know, like it's torturous to. It was really, to uh, to, you know, honestly, the, the worst thing aside from, from getting mono itself and the kind of afterlife of it where I get tired more easily still is that now whenever I have a cold, I can't feel really self-indulgent about it because it's like, can I swallow? Yes. <laughs> can I, can I like, perform basic tasks? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so when I started coming out of this, I thought it was really funny that I had fallen so sick while reading these books about, like, early Christianity and the body and so on. And I thought, I wonder if there's something I could do with that juxtaposition, um, but probably I should also learn more about the disease itself. So what this produced was this piece that, like you said, is par- personal narrative, like this is me being sick and and so on. Um, and then some discussion of Gnosticism and then some discussion about like what viruses are. But I think most of the actual dramatic 
line of the piece is about Gnosticism. Um, so I guess I should explain that a little. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, I guess I maybe know as much about Gnosticism as I did about Manos. Um, so, so for the lay audience, uh, what is Gnosticism? So Gnosticism is a name that's kind of retroactively applied to um, basically in early Christianity, you have lots of Christian groups kind of going off different ways. Uh, And some of them um, are called Gnostic, although it's not always clear if they called themselves Gnostic. Um, And uh, Gnostics tended to um well in the in the uh essay I tend to stick with with one particular gnostic school just to make it simpler so Valentinius Valentinus um who was a a gnostic teacher um has this whole huge framework where uh the world is created because I think Sophia, whose wisdom, tries to understand God and uh, her attempt to do so only creates in her an understanding of her own like difference from God, which her unhappiness over that creates matter. Uh-huh. Um, and then Sophia creates a kind of fake God to rule over the, the world of matter, who is the god of the Old Testament, basically, um, but it's also called the Demiurge. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of human life is this kind of struggle to escape the world of matter and um, return to the sort of pure spiritual world because people are kind of half and half. Um, and uh, it's also a little unclear. It could be that some people are half and half and some people are actually only matter, more or less. Um, there's a kind of open-endedness about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might be some people who are for all moral purposes, more or less like a robot or, or something like, hmm. or, or my dog or, you know, like you interact with it. Um, but they, they don't necessarily have like, a, they're not morally troubling because when they die, they just won't have ever existed. Basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I mean, anyway, you know what I mean. Um, well, and who were, were these? Were, who who were these people at the time? Like slaves, or was it just ra- randomly no, sorted? It's, it's a it's like a a three part three people are sort of like your soul has three aspects. Um, and I'm doing all of this from memory, so <laughs> I feel like the the Gnostic experts at blogging heads are going to log in and be like, but. Uh, but I think you have that the highest is spiritual, and then you have something called like psychic, which is more troubling 
the sort of various impulses. Um, and then you have matter. And there's an implication, or you can read the sort of text a couple different ways. And one is to say, these are tendencies that everybody has, and you kind of choose which to go. You know, like you choose which to, to cultivate and mm-hmm. so on. And the other is that these are three kinds of people. And so you have like truly spiritual people, you have people who can kind of go either way, and then you have dirt people. But, uh, but it's not, um, it doesn't quite correspond to an actual social class, um, partly because I think Christianity at this time was still kind of an underground religion. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to have, they don't have enough power to like map this onto a social hierarchy yet. Um, and uh, the moment that the Christians um, who sort of become modern day Christianity get the upper hand, they more or less get rid of the Gnostics as, as you do. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of the end of, of Gnosticism, but it, it has this whole afterlife um Partly because there are a lot of things about the way of thinking about the world that are um, attractive. Like, A, the world is a mess, and it's sort of nice to be told that, yeah, it's a mess because it was never supposed to exist. Um, It's a mess, and there's not really anything you can do about it. Um, And... uh, and also, I think, honestly, like, uh, it, it makes you feel good for being smart <laughs> because <laughs> Gnosticism requires these kinds of initiations into mysteries. And, um, it really is for smart people. Um, and so, like, a big thing in the various accounts I read is that they, you know, like Gnostics don't really believe in a literal resurrection of the body because the body is bad and so on. Uh, and they think it's, it's silly, like that sort of normal Christians or, or non-Gnostic Christians hold to this kind of obsession that the body will come back. Um, and I think, uh. Yeah, so part of this is, yeah. is related to, um, uh, Jesus's resurrection, right? And yeah. these debates about whether he was, you know, a purely right. like, spiritual form at that point, or whether yeah. he still was flesh. And like Valentin, Valentinus is so um, obsessed with sort of um, clearing Jesus of the stigma of the body that I think we don't have a lot of things he actually wrote, but um, at least it's claimed that he thought that. Jesus ate in a special way that meant that he never had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Um, And um, uh, either he or different Gnostic has this kind of like the the resurrection involves like sort of a body that we hallucinate because it's like how we have to understand Jesus, but it's not really there. There's not really a body. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I think um, then Gnosticism has 
this and narcissism. Sorry, I feel like I keep on sort of zigzagging. Narcissism as a, a thing is sort of a modern creation. Um, what I'm just was just describing is a actual an actual ancient school of thought. Mm-hmm. But what happens is that uh, we mostly know of these people through kind of writings against them at, for a long time. And um, various kind of scholars get interested in this idea of a sort of secret Christianity um, and sort of theorize about what it must have contained and so on. And there's this assumption that it's something more codified than it actually was. And then in, I want to say, the 50s or 60s, this huge treasure trove of documents is discovered. Um, and that kind of changes everything and reveals more diversity and sort of shows that it's not a, it wasn't like a cohesive challenge to um, the kind of institutional Christianity of bishops and so on. It was uh, more diffuse and, and so on thing. Um, but I think that it has this, this appeal again, because it, it just kind of asserts that the world is bad, which I think just about everyone can sign on to from experience. <laughs> and, um, and that, uh, you know, it, that's just what it is. And you can extract yourself from it, and that's about all you can do. Um, uh, and then the, the Christians who sort of remained committed to the idea that the resurrection had to involve a literal body, and therefore the kind of promise of resurrection wasn't like you know, you'll eventually kind of ascend into the realm of spirit, but like, like your, your literal body is going to get resurrected, um, had a lot of problems that they had to work through. Uh, and I don't know that it's even fair to say they were resolved, but, um, things like there was a lot of argument over like what happens to all of your fingernail clippings. <laughs> uh, Cause they were once part of your body and have been yeah. discarded. Yeah, uh, and like, not less practical, but kind of like the theoretical, like, uh, trolley problem of, of the resurrection body is what about cannibalism? Um, like, if you're eaten by another person, then your body becomes part of their body. Mm-hmm. Um, are you resurrected at the age at which you died? Um, are you like, will there be some kind of hierarchy of resurrected bodies and, and so on and so on. Um, uh, and, um, and this obviously like, like the, the arguments are weird because they're kind of, they're dealing with stuff. And so you do end up in these questions like what happens to my fingernails, you know? Um, <laughs> and you can't, completely write that off as ridiculous like you do have to work through it um but a big assertion kind of underneath this is that like the world is kind of a a broken place but it's not a mistake like the 
the body is not a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, the kind of, and in, in some ways of thinking about like, martyrs who have been tortured or something the idea was that they would be both resurrected intact but with like signs of their martyrdom so it would be kind of like whatever happens to you in this life matters it's not like whenever you're resurrected it's kind of as like a being that's so pure it's not like attached to your life anymore Mm -hmm. um but trying to work out what that relationship will be, what it means, you know, that's the kind of hard part. Um, and well, that's uh, just um, a question. So, what, yeah. I mean, Jesus, when he was resurrected, he had a wound in his side. Yeah. Um, from his, you know, torture before he was crucified. Right. Where does where does it, how does that play into the various theories? Because that seems to indicate, yeah, you'll you're you know, it's not yeah. a pure. I mean, I think the kind of thing you. You can point out, um, I think Jesus's resurrected body is, um, you know, his, his wounds are still manifest. Um, but it's also clearly a different kind of body because I think at one point he passes through a wall. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, that seems to suggest that a resurrected body is, is not exactly a normal human body, but that, um, it also retains its history in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, I found this a very interesting way of thinking about being really sick because, you know, when you're really sick, um, the way that, that I was and lots of people are, um, you cannot do a single thing for yourself. <laughs> and you just kind of have to go crawling along to anyone who feels bad enough for you to like do really basic tasks for you because you, you cannot, you know, if, if you can't find somebody else to do them, they just won't. Happen. Right. And so, yeah, just, so you, you describe some of these things and if I'm remembering correctly, um, you're lying down and you vomit and then you can't like, like clean yourself essentially yeah i choked on something and i i had to i was trying to cough it out and i was just like throwing up water yes um okay so that's you know i'm sorry i had to go through that <laughs> um <laughs> how did you how did you feel about sharing you know, like uh, something like that with the public um you know a, usually those things are people are not eager to, to talk about them but also you know you're a writer you're an essayist um so you wanted to give the unvarnished truth? Um. Well, I think, I don't know if that would have made it in or not, except that um, uh, I was at the time, like when that was happening, pretty convinced I was about to die because I had taken this ibuprofen and it wouldn't come out of my throat. Um, and... Uh, and then afterward, I had this, like, extremely vivid dream kind of about one of the people who helped me out, uh, who helped clean up after um, after that incident. And that seemed to be the right way to end the essay. So I sort of, I don't know, it, when you're writing something, it kind of has a shape. <laughs> 
and you sort of have to respect that shape, even if, um, even if it, you'd rather not write about vomiting. But the, the truth is I didn't think about it that much. I just knew that I needed to put that dream in there. So the other story went in there. I mostly worried if I worried about it, about it sounding melodramatic um, because of the thinking that I was going to die part. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it also has given me a pretty deep aversion to audiobooks because I was listening to an audiobook when that was playing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really not a, it was really mediocre memoir. And, uh, and I just thought I could, I could just die while this was playing. This could, this could just happen. It could be my last book. And somehow the thought of dying in the middle of reading a paper mediocre book is less horrifying. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I guess it's just the voice which just kind of kept chattering on. Yeah, there is something kind of um, macabre or something about the, uh, the, the rest of it unspooling. Um, and <laughs> yeah, then the book would finish at least. You know, it's not like the unread, you know, the pages that will never, <laughs> never be turned, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, okay. So what, yeah. So what did you think about, like, okay, how, how did this experience of having a severe illness that incapacitated you, like, did that change any kind of like belief about the human person or the spirit, <laughs> the, the mind body, the spirit and the flesh? Right. I think um, change is not the word that I'd use exactly, uh, but I think I am a person. Uh, if I if I could be a ghost, I'd pretty happily accept that. You know, like <laughs> I don't really like living in a body. I don't really like um, the amount of maintenance that it requires, like all of the eating I have to do and, and so on. Um, and it only requires more the, uh, the older you get. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, uh, I, I don't like the fact that, uh, I get tired. I don't, you know, um, uh, and I think, um, that dislike is just something I, I sort of struggle with because for me, all of that is very uh, emotional. And then intellectually, I'm much more kind of pro the body. <laughs> uh, and this is a, a kind of constant tension for me. Um, but I, I think I gained a lot more respect and affection for my body by being so helpless. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because when I could do something, when like I could set up or whatever, I was just really grateful. Um, and then when I could do more normal things like walking or whatever, uh, I was again grateful. Um, and, uh, I think, um, I mean, I think the the big thing is that, or the thing that connects the sort of illness narrative with um, the the Gnostic 
resurrection like narrative is that um a big i think i think this is fair a big gnostic hope is that uh the kind of final spiritual ascent means the end of desire um that whenever you get to the realm of pure spirit desire goes hmm. uh and the um the kind of uh the christians who believe in the bodily resurrection uh can't cut it that cleanly because uh i mean this kind of goes back to the fingernail thing bodies are always changing like, like they kind of embody <laughs> bodies and body jeez uh but they 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 uh they're not they're not static things that's another question about what a resurrected body looks like um and so the thought that desire could continue even in heaven is is sort of um i mean there's debate over it but the 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 allegiance to the body kind of ultimately pushes things in that direction that uh the kind of longing and dependence and um interconnection and so on that are all characterized by desire uh those will all stay um but they won't be associated with unhappiness mhm um, um, it it sounds buddhist in the like eliminating craving and attachment will lead to, mm-hmm. you know, transcendence of, of the self. And then like, there's some, you know, some people who have say they, you know, like meditate for so long that they, um, do like they've cast away all their attachments mm-hmm. and then, you know, they kind of view their like, uh, children with the same, the same view that they would view like a child on the, sh- you know, walking down the street. Um, right. Because they have no particular attachment to, to any one person. So it, it, that's kind of like a, a weirdly like, <laughs> no, it, it, it's like nightmarish in some ways to think about, to think about that yeah. world where you have no like at- attachments or preferences. Right. No, it's, it's not a, um, I think it's a, it can be personally attractive, but like not attractive when you think of somebody doing it to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I think, yeah, like, um, the, if, if you decide to, to stay with the body, you have to delare, de- declare a kind of allegiance to particulars, um, that like particular bodies matter, particular people matter, particular experiences matter, particular relationships matter. Um, that all of these things are kind of points of access through which we express and receive love and understand God and so on. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I think that, um, as I said earlier, it's very easy to agree with the proposition that the world is bad because there's lot of really horrible things in the world but i think there's also this kind of i mean uh like while i was learning stuff about viruses for the piece um it turns out that viruses perform this whole role of bringing genes kind of from one species to another to like aid in evolution 
Um, and so viruses are why we have a placenta, mm-hmm. basically, uh, among other things. Um, and so it's like even creepy little viruses, which are basically these little undead things that just replicate themselves until you die or hide in your lymph nodes forever. Uh, you know, even they have this kind of beautiful function. Um, (laughs) and so like, uh, and so ultimately I, I do think there is something good about the world that is what makes the things about the world evil so disappointing. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so this has gotten really deep now into, like, uh, you know, um, justifying the ways of God to man. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> but I want to bring us back uh, somewhat, <laughs> somewhat lighter, just something you remind me of, which is, I may have a couple of details of this wrong, but uh, there's this editorial cartoon trope when a famous person dies of the famous person arriving at the gates of heaven. Yeah. And when George H.W. Bush died, there was a cartoon that went around um, showing that he had uh, left his wheelchair yeah. uh, outside the gates and he was inside embracing uh, Barbara Bush, his wife who died, you know, like six months mm-hmm. before he did. Um, and then there was some... So this is like very maudlin and, you know, just... You know, I'm sure when Bob Hope died, there was, like, one with him carrying his golf clubs into heaven or something. It's just, like, they just turn these things out. It's very silly. Uh, But there were some people pushing back, um, like, disability activists uh, and such, uh, pushing back, saying, you know, uh, like, I am not a, like, broken, like, thing that is waiting to be, like, made made whole in in the world to come. And, like, you know, and then there was, I, I think people actually, this turned into kind of a like weird, cruel joke, but it was like uh, when Vern Troyer died, the guy who played Mini Me in um, the Austin Power movies. So people mm-hmm. were like, "Well, is he like tall now, or right. is he, or is he the same?" And I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make about all this. Um, but it's it just like, yeah, these issues, the issues that the Gnostics were arguing about, it's yeah, like, it I continues mean, to be like befuddlesome today. Yeah, all of these early Christian debates, and none of them really go away. Um, and I think, I mean, like, there's a kind of general belief among many Christians at this time, though not, like, settled in any sense, that um, people will be resurrected at the age of 33. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus' age when he died. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, but I also think with George H.W. Bush, there's actually uh, a well, I mean, he was in a wheelchair thanks to old age, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think that makes it a bit different. I think um, when it comes to people who are born with disabilities, I think it's a... If you wanted to hash this out, I think there'd be a stronger case that those things will be somehow perfected but still present in heaven, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like. Uh, but... Um, but somebody, I mean, I think the, if we use the 33 cop out, then it would be like, well, George H.W. Bush will look like however he looked when he was 33. Um, but I think, 
It is. Um, there's actually a book that's coming out about this, but I haven't read it. Um, sort of about the way that Christian beliefs about the perfection of the body have um, been used to, to sort of morally stigmatize disability hmm. and so on. Um, so I certainly wouldn't deny that that's a, a possible road that my kind of affection for, for my newfound affection for bodily existence uh, <laughs> could, um, could go down. Um, but, uh, but the, I don't think that the Gnostic route, um, works much better because it just kind of says you can escape your body, not, you know, it, it's okay to be deaf or, or what have you. Um, uh, however, it, it would make me very happy if the, the backlash over the George H.W. Bush cartoon caused us just never to have, um, cartoons of, of random people entering heaven. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, there's, you know, there's still dozens of um, editorial cartoonists out there, and um, yeah. most of them are not super great, so they do a lot of hacky stuff. <laughs> there's also this um, trope that I probably gets made fun of more than it actually exists on Twitter, which is like, if a couple celebrities die within the same week or something, it's like they're all up in heaven partying with each other. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. You know, Prince and Bowie are like jamming out in heaven right now. <laughs> um, so that's, yeah, I guess that's just one you know, kind of one perspective of what, <laughs> what heaven could possibly be like. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the pop culture role that heaven plays is kind of this big, big, cheerful afterlife party slash mystery science theater room. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cause you get, to, you get to watch what's happening on earth. Yeah. Comment on it. Uh, but, uh, but I, I will say for people who are trying to figure out whether or not to read my essay, it's, it's not really about heaven, though it is interested in questions of uh, what it means to believe or not believe in, in a bodily resurrection. Um, I also think that you can read it without really believing in a, a resurrection in any sense, even though I do because I'm Catholic and all that. <laughs> but... Uh, but I think it has a, uh, you can either read it as a, a historical argument or as a different kind if you want to. Yeah, um, I am um, an agnostic on all forms of resurrection and I enjoy <laughs> the essay. So I encourage people uh, to read it. Uh, the link will be below. Okay, let's let's move on to the other piece of yours that we're, we're going to discuss. Oh, um, yeah. This is this in is... Commonweal. Um, the title is Innocence Abroad. Um, whoever edits your pieces is, has some very good headline writing skills um, at various sites because that's a great title as well. Yeah. This is, this is an essay about the Children's Crusade or Crusades. I guess there was more than one. Um, yeah, I think it's usually just called the Children's Crusade. Okay. Uh, so it's also about a, a book of that same title. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, that you unearthed. Um, okay. So what? So I guess – I really had no idea what the Children's Crusade was. It's not in, it's not kind of in popular culture very much. There's a, it's um uh, Slaughterhouse 5 has like references to the yeah. Children's Crusade. I guess that that's about all I knew about it. Uh so what what is the Children's Crusade? What was it? 
The Children's Crusade was made up of two movements of children, um, one in Germany and one in France, I want to say in 1212, but I guess I could check the article just stealthily. Yes, 1212. (laughs) Um, uh, And um, basically these, these children had this idea that they needed to go to Jerusalem. And, um, so they, uh, they kind of marched various places and no one really knows what happens to them. Um, there is a kind of popular historical tradition that emerges, um, a bit later that, uh, many of them either died or were sold into slavery. Um, by unscrupulous merchants in Marseille pretending, is that how you say Marseille? Yeah, Marseille. Sorry. Um, uh, pretending to, to take them to Jerusalem, who instead took them to Egypt and sold them to slavery. And that's the story that the book follows. Um, and, uh, the, the book is by, uh, if, French Jewish writer named Marcel Schwab. Um, it's very stylized. It's like eight brief tales, which are sort of these narratives from, from different people. Um, mm-hmm. two of whom are popes. Uh, there's a leper. There's a kind of homeless wandering cleric. Two of them are from the point of view of the children. Uh, one of them is from the point of view of a very cranky cleric who really doesn't like the children. And one of them is from the point of view of a, a Muslim holy man. Um, and, and this this book is, was written a hundred years ago, or more than a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, quite some time ago. It was republished last year by Wakefield Press, and I I got it basically on a whim. Um, I was interested in a different book by Schwab, uh, and. Um, I also was really bored with everything I was reading, so I kind of logged onto their website and just bought, like, a lot of books. Uh, and so the the book is very haunting um, because uh, people are so touched by and then concerned for these children. They're obsessed with the children's purity, actually in a way that makes the book really weird to read right now because uh, there's this constant repetition of the word white <laughs> in a way that is, is supposed to signify a kind of like blank pure quality, but uh-huh. it just feels weird when it's like it's the white children, the white children walking through the white forest, following uh-huh. the white voices. It's like, wow, uh-huh. this is a lot of, this is a, uh, you know, in, in, in 2019, this all reads a little bit differently. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, the, uh, oh, they, so they're, they're all obsessed with the children's purity, but, but they, they all sell them out, basically. Um, either sell them out or don't take the steps necessary to protect them. Um, and, I think I, following the kind of, um, you know, as, as more and more information about, um, various Catholic sex abuse things unfold, um, 
I, I become very interested in the way that people talk about childhood innocence because it often seems a way to sort of position yourself as like tough on abuse. But since actual children are rarely like these kind of ethereal floating beings, like they can be unpleasant. You might think they're lying. You might, you know, like you, uh, it's easy for them not to live up to that standard of innocence, basically. Mm -hmm. And it also means that when adults are abused, if the real issue that you have with abuse of children is this kind of idea of a violation of innocence, adults don't have that. So protecting Mm -hmm. them or, or looking through their claims is, uh, is, is not important. Um, and so like, you know, the, the most recent sort of abuse stuff was all kicked off by relevations of abuse of adults, but the response was to call a summit for the protection of minors, that kind of thing where, and then, um, you have this kind of very strong language about like, um, the little ones who cry for justice and so on. And it's not that I don't think it's very hard to know how to talk about this in a way that doesn't like lead to you sticking your whole foot in your mouth. Um, Cause it's not that I don't think that children are innocent. It's not that I don't think they deserve justice, but that there's a kind of prescient, precious momentizing of, <laughs> of children that uh, real children just won't ever be. Um, And then also children who are abused can grow up to be really troubled and unpleasant people. And then that's kind of retroactively applied to their accusations. So it's like, well, this kid says that something such happened to him, but now he's a drug addict. So. Right. And yeah. So, and and sometimes the, um, a um, child predator will seek out a child. Yeah seems to be in a, you know, like an unstable living situation or seems somewhat troubled. And so that they'll be like less likely, less likely that an adult is paying close attention to what's going on with them. Right. And, and then like, they are more likely to grow up to be a troubled adult. Yeah. And so, um, I think what I also thought looking at this story, um, was that this was a way to think about this, that where I was least likely to stick my foot in my mouth. Um, because it's, you know, about this really weird and really sad thing that happened in 1212. Um, and what also interested me when I started reading about the background of the Children's Crusade is that there's this whole weird historical argument about whether or not the children were children, Hmm. uh, which I get into in the piece a little bit. Um, but basically this... I want to say Dutch academic um, had an idea that, well, real adulthood in the Middle Ages was attained through marriage. So what if these people are called children because they're like poor laborers who will never afford marriage, basically? Uh, and um, uh, the, the main book I, I looked at for background by this guy named Gary Dixon. And uh, he he's pretty skeptical of this, like, 
revisionist understanding. But what I find interesting about it is that there's this kind of assumption that if you're a shepherd, you're not a child. Mm-hmm. So, like, one of the, the sort of common um, responses to this sort of alternate labor theory is that uh, a lot of laborers were, in fact, children. Like, uh ages between the ages I think of seven and 14 is kind of one medieval demarcation of childhood. And a lot of them were working because the, the medievals did not have child labor laws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so like a lot of, yeah, like some of them were shepherds and some of them were working on farms. Um, but it doesn't make them not children. It just, again, makes them not this kind of, Precious moments, child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what Dixon points out is that a basically all uses of the the Latin word puerile and like relative relevant other contexts do mean children. Um, but also that like as these these movements grow, uh, chronicle writers note the the adding on of adults which it wouldn't mm-hmm. make sense for them to notice if it wasn't mostly children. Uh, but I think, again, this has this whole... It is about trying to to use an assumption that, like, a child is a passive and inert thing and can't have experience of life and so on to, like, fulfill um, the kind of... of a position where you might feel moved and sad by what happens to them. Uh, so, I mean, the, the piece is mostly looking at uh, a little bit at the, the context um, and the kind of historical debates about what on earth happened here, um, but also looking at the, the role that purity plays in the book um, and the way that Many, if not all, of the adults have this kind of innate aggression toward the children um, that they kind of they want to control them or they want to hurt them or uh, and that seems to be wrapped up in this like viewing them as blanks huh. um, not as as people. Um, uh, yeah, the Children's Crusade does have this kind of odd afterlife. Um, like you said, Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, there's another novel about it that I wasn't able to get a copy of. That is uh, Polish, I think. Um, and uh, a book I read was sort of an idea of putting them together, though it ended up not working out, is uh, Valeria Luiselli's newest novel, Lost Children Archive, which is about the deportation of children um, now. Uh, and it actually, I didn't know this going in, but it name drops the, the Schwab book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, it, it sort of used for this symbol of kind of mass child suffering, um, which is, I think to me, the last interesting thing about it, which is that, um, 
at least according to contemporary chronicles, no adult wanted the children to do this. Like, there are accounts of parents trying to lock their kids in their rooms to keep them from pursuing this, and so on. And so the other thing about this that I think makes it a much stranger story is that it really is actually a kind of assertion of... Uh, I'm going to use the word I hate, agency, <laughs> uh, of some kind. Um, and it's not a story of adults sending children off to die or being indifferent to the, you know, like sort of viewing the death of children as the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in the, in the novel, it's um, something the children pursue uh, in the face of adult malice, basically. Um, and so that I think, I mean, certainly when I think of the, the deportation of children, um, I mean, I guess you can analogize the, the deportation people to the, the merchants who supposedly sold the children out. But I, I feel like we usually, when we're thinking about horrible things that happen in a mass scale children, um, even if the violence is perpetrated by other children, as in the case of school shootings, uh, we ultimately find the villains and adults, which I think is probably right. I mean, certainly in the case of school shootings. Um Which means that it's actually quite hard to use the Children's Crusade as a, a moral metaphor now. Because, I mean, the, I guess the closest would be something like what the Parkland kids were doing, actually. Yeah, that's what I was, that's what it, I was thinking. It, like that, at, at first, the Parkland surviving students, like it did seem like they were just operating on their own, um, without, mm-hmm. <laughs> without the adults, um, helping them along, and then, I'm sure there are more adults involved now. Um, there's also the, you know, contemporary analogs, although they're not exact, would be like, yeah, migrant children, these unaccompanied minors um, mm-hmm. uh, crossing the U.S.-Mexican border. And then I, I suppose this, these like kind of burgeoning protest movements around climate change uh, happening in Europe that have been led by school children. Um so yeah, you know the impulse. The impulse is still there among children. Like it is, it is very hard just to imagine, like this, like a group of children. And it, is there any, is there any information about how many children like this would have been, like twenty or like five hundred or? It would have been, I think, in the thousands. Oh wow. Okay. So, um, but this is the sort of thing where it's very hard to trust medieval chronicles, uh, because. They will sometimes just provide huge numbers. But let me see. I can pull up the Dixon book rather quickly mm-hmm. on my computer. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's, just, it's hard to imagine a, a large group of children, however we're defining children, like organizing themselves and going off to do something on their yeah. own. Um, you know, medieval life is very different than modern life. Um, but right. but still, like, if you imagine, like, a huge summer camp and, when, and then there's no adults <laughs> and then, like, they're traveling and somehow they, like, know what, I mean, they have this idea of what Jerusalem is, but they probably don't really know what it is, and they don't exactly know where it is, but somehow still they're traveling towards it. It is, it is like hard to believe that this, uh, happened, but I guess it did. Um, 
So yeah, no, uh, they are. Let's see. I'm just trying to see if I can find really quickly anything about the size. If I can't quite quickly, I, I won't worry about it. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, to the the people at the time, this was deeply weird. Uh, <laughs> like one medieval chronicle. And <laughs> with like um you know the the story about uh you know the children are are wandering around and um no one quite knows what what happened to them and then it just ends with also around the same time naked women ran through the towns and cities saying nothing <laughs> hmm. which is just kind of like weird things are just happen they're just going <laughs> They're just going to happen. Um, but yeah, and, uh, the other interesting thing I, I learned from, from Dixon's book, which did not end up making it into the piece because there, there was no way to work it in very well, is that, um, they, this was apparently the only kind of, populist unofficial crusade that did not um, did not end up in a kind of manifestations of anti-Semitic violence. Huh. Okay. Uh, like there's just no record of accompanying anti-Semitic violence, which is sort of unheard of for these kind of populist you know, uh, not that, that anti-Semitic violence, I think was probably unheard of in the official crusades either, but, but this one just seems to be sort of free of that, which is quite interesting. Um, but it's really hard to know what to make of it, except it's another thing that makes it as an event really odd. Hmm. Yeah, that, uh, is, that is interesting. I didn't realize that every other like unofficial crusade was, uh, <laughs> was uh, partaking in anti-Semitic violence, but um, I guess it makes sense. Uh, <laughs> for back then, at least, uh, we, we condemn all uh, all anti-Semitic violence. Uh, uh, yes, Perpetrated by children or not. <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, why don't we... We probably have time for one more topic. Um, mm-hmm. We were thinking two different possible topics. Um, why don't we go with... Queer Eye for the just no, it's not even called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. It's called just called yeah, Queer Eye. Yeah, uh, the TV show Queer Eye, um, which yeah. you and I both watch. And, and the the only group DM I am in is the one that you set up for talking about Queer Eye. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, uh, yeah, so I set up a very small group DM among people who like the show who I knew already. Um, okay, so what what is Queer Eye? So it's People probably have heard of it. There was a show that launched around the year 2000 called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. That was the first iteration. Um, it was five gay men who swoop into the life of a straight man who is kind of not living up to his potential. He dresses mm-hmm. like a slob. He doesn't know how to cook anything for himself. Uh, he has low self-esteem. He, you know, he doesn't know how to groom himself, blah, blah, blah. And they teach him all these things. So this was It was a hit um, back in the day, uh, you know, about 20 years ago. 
And it was, I think it was kind of a trailblazing show because, um, you know, I think this is just a couple of years after Ellen came out of the closet mm-hmm. and there, there weren't a ton, it wasn't like, I think Will and Grace was probably on, but there weren't a ton of shows that had um, gay characters and these were five actual real life gay, gay people on this right. makeover show. And it went for a couple seasons and then kind of petered out. And then um, last year, I think, um, Netflix rebooted the uh, the show as Just Queer Eye. Uh, there's five new gay men who uh, star in it, and they um, they are no longer constrained by uh, the idea of a straight guy. So they they will go and <laughs> help um, straight women, uh, lesbians, gay men, uh, a trans uh, transgender man in one episode. Um, and sometimes it's more like they're helping out a group or there's one episode yeah. with two sisters. Um, so yeah, so this show is kind of like, like irresistibly likable and I encourage people to check it out, even if you're not big on reality TV or like makeover shows, which I'm not especially, but the, the people they chose, the five guys known as the Fab Five, um, are definitely better than the original, the original, um, quintet, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. and Although there's one that everyone likes to make fun of, but, but the other ones are generally like, they know what they're doing and, um, and they're entertaining, they're talented. They, they seem to, and so the show is not just like, here's a, here's a new wardrobe, here's a new hairdo, like put you on your way. They they do seem to like, like encounter people who have genuine life difficulties and, um, try to help them turn things around. There's one of the, one of the guys, Caramo is like a social worker type and sometimes he seems to have really good advice for the people. Other times his advice is less good, but yeah. they do actually talk about like the actual issues that the people are having. It's not like it goes beyond the superficial. Okay, so what do you what do you think of, of Queer Eye? I um I find it pretty reliably delightful. Uh partly I think especially as the seasons go on, because in the first season, there's this weird quality where it's like they show up places and they're like, we're the Fab Five. But it's like it's like watching the monkeys kind of announce themselves like, yeah, who are, who are like you, you guys <laughs> who are, are just people? a fake band. But now they kind of have an actual actual history. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, Anthony, the, the cooking expert um, is is interesting to me because he's. It's not just honestly that he is, you know, like incredibly beautiful and doesn't really seem to have any cooking talent, <laughs> but he might. Uh, but the other thing is that he's just kind of weird. Like somebody actually sent me a thread about this on Twitter that like Anthony is basically so attractive that there's a kind of interpersonal affect. He just never learned because he never needed to. (laughs) I don't know if this is true, but I think about the way that he like interacts with people's fridges or he just kind of eats the most disgusting thing or just says something kind of strange. Uh, And, um, but yeah, no, it, it always, I think one thing I really like about it as a show, I never saw the original, so. I wa- yeah, I watched the original when it, when it was on, at least for one season. Uh, but, uh, what I really like is that they, they sort of go out of their way, or it seems like they go out of their way to pick really 
average people. So it's like, it's not like, oh, this person is, I don't know. They're not picking, you know, like the very first episode of the very first season, it's about a retired truck driver. And then it's like, you know, in this season, here are two sisters who run up a, a barbecue. Uh, or here's this girl who's been taking care of herself since she was 16 because her parents kicked her out because she was gay and uh, she had to drop out of college and she's a waitress. And it's just like, there was a kind of deliberately not selecting kind of meritocratic stars that happens in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, and maybe that sort of is also, I mean, that's one reason I like it, but it also probably is what gives it a kind of uh, Cinderella's fairy godmother kind of appeal. Yeah. Uh, because it's like these really are extremely normal people. Whereas I want to see, like, even with the Marie Kondo show, which I did for some reason watch all of, uh, I, I felt like those people tended to be more impressive, but I could be wrong about this. It's hmm. just my I didn't, Yeah, I didn't watch that one because the uh, reviews were mixed, so I thought I would not devote my time to I, it. I respected her folding technique so much I felt like I owed it to her. <laughs> uh, but um, although really it's basically all like these couples that clearly kind of hate each other and it was pretty distressing actually. It was a dist- <laughs> it was distressing to watch. Uh, but um, but yeah I think the the appeal is partly it's it's not a mean show. Uh even when they're kind of making fun of like in this current season, there's this guy who's a camp counselor and he lives in a trailer and he just kind of he's a mess. He's a he's a complete mess. And there's one and when they first go into his abode, they are kind of like, Oh my goodness, everything is terrible here. But he later thanks them for not making fun of him. Mm-hmm. Uh and so it's like even they're kind of dramatic. Oh wow, this cabin is the worst. Which, frankly, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, like they they do it in a way where it's kind of clear that they're acting for the camera and not trying to to put anyone down. I don't know. There's just like a real warmth to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, that's interesting because there's. There's something that they um, always that was like my least favorite little segment of the show was when they would first come in and they would go into the guy's wardrobe and then mm-hmm. they would pull out all his ugly, disgusting clothing and like kind of parade around the house in it. And then I think yeah. they they stopped doing that in the most recent season, or at least they, they yeah. cut down on how much they're showing because it was like just like okay, let's you know let's like mock this person before we, um, uh, you know, before we give them like a new you know <laughs> like. $2,000 worth of new clothing or whatever. Um, right. So, yeah, so I, I like that. I did, so sometimes, I mean, yeah, so the people are generally pretty average. Yeah, they're not, I mean, if they were exceptional people, then they wouldn't need the Fab Five to kind of swoop in and rearrange their lives. They could, like, pay for it themselves to do stuff like I that. I mean, so you could have somebody, something like, 
she's a lawyer who wants to be on the partnership track, but right. unless she can get her life in control, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. So they don't, yeah. Yeah, it's mostly middle class, some lower middle class people. Um, and yeah. And sometimes they have serious, sometimes it's just like, they kind of need a makeover essentially like the woman in the first episode of the new season. Um, yeah. Who essentially just gets a makeover and she doesn't really seem to, she seems to have a perfectly nice <laughs> life and they don't really need to help her improve anything. There was in a previous season, there was a guy who was like 22 or so and had, um, and was basically like a congenital liar and, um, oh, had, yeah. hadn't told his parents that he didn't actually graduate because like he missed his final like credits or something. So his parents believe that he had a college degree when he didn't and he was like playing video games all day. Um, so that guy, you know, I mean, there's a couple times where it's just like, you want them to say, okay, we're going to, here's a list of, of three <laughs> therapists and we'll help you like set up the appointments <laughs> and you can go to talk to someone because if the, um, if you recall the, in that, in the liar episode, Caramo gave him a lie detector test, <laughs> which he then ripped up the results of and said it didn't matter, which I don't know yeah. if that's really ineffective, like psychological I mean, method. Like- Queer eye for the you need some medical insurance guy basically, uh, yeah no I mean uh, yeah I think um, yeah there are always people where it's like the it they, they don't just need a boost like they really need need help and uh, Karamo like uh, he always does these kind of weird extreme therapies. And even in the ones where he doesn't really have to do that much, like with the camel lady, where he's like, well, I think that you have problems with being feminine. So I got a bunch of women together on a roof. <laughs> yeah, that one was pretty weird. Now <laughs> we're all just going to talk about being a woman. Uh, but also he had these kind of like, like build a wall of your fears and then, then knock it down. Uh, whichever guy that was, I don't remember. He seemed to generally <laughs> like feel like that was an effective. Like, yeah, he was like, "Wow, that really helped." So I was like, "Okay, yeah, you know, if it works." Uh, no, I mean uh, that that guy, at least in the episode, I actually would really love to see follow ups on these people, like yeah. two years later, maybe. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that um, the yeah the worst aspect of the show is this way that uh, sometimes these people need something that you can't sort of give in a magical week or, or whatever. Um, and you feel fairly certain that the pathological liar is just going <laughs> to keep on lying. Um, uh, and the other family I remember feeling a little bit worried about was this was in the first season. It was a family with several children and the real issue was that the the dad had to work like three jobs and mm. was basically not sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the mother was chasing after like five children all the time. So it's like, that's why everything's a disaster. And so there's something about, like, as I said, I, I like the fact that they're not picking kind of a striver types, but there is something about talking to a person who literally can't get enough sleep and being like, You've got to take care of yourself. <laughs> and and uh, that, I don't know. Also, they gave that family like a white couch. And I just thought. Oh, I don't remember that. 
But like they gave all this white interior decoration, and I just thought that was actually in the in the newest season. I thought that Bobby's uh, home interiors have have gone up a notch. They used to to feel kind of characterless, and now I think they're they're better. But well, um, although, yeah. yeah, so Bobby is the interior design expert, and um, he's actually I think he's my favorite of the five guys, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll shortly after ask you who your favorite of the five guys is, but, um, yeah, he's, he's, yeah, you can tell he's like legitimately talented. Whereas like Anthony, who knows Caramo, like as a social worker or something like, like, okay, Tan knows how to pick out clothes or someone, but like this guy is doing like legitimate, like, like yeah. modeling work within the, within the span of like three days and, you know, like brings in all this, um, you know, furniture that usually seems good. Um, although, yeah. So in the, um, in the new season, there's one episode where one of the episodes where they have little kids, um, he got them this, uh, this big, uh, kind of coffee table that looked like mm-hmm. it had pretty sharp metal corners. <laughs> I was like, you know, <laughs> if you have little kids running around, you probably don't want that one exactly. But, but, ge- but generally, like, you know, it makes it all, it makes it look like a West Elm showroom kind of, kind of thing. And, um, and he's also, he, he seems like he's always really nice. He's really positive. He has like a, a story similar to the, a uh, young lesbian woman where like his, I think he was possibly Mormon. I can't remember, but he was, you know, he, he came out and his family yeah. kicked him out of the house. And, um, you know, he was like living in his car for a number of years. Um, so he, 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 he relates to the people who are, um, religious, um, because, you know, he was, was raised intensely religious. Okay. So who, who is your, who is your favorite of the Fab Five? Well, I think I have to say Anthony just ah. because I wouldn't <laughs> be watching the show without him. Uh, but if, if we're going off of, I think, I think Bobby works the hardest, absolutely. Um, and I think probably after him, Jonathan. Uh, but, but if Anthony left the show, I, I would, I would stop watching. Really? So, <laughs> so I have to give him, uh, he's just like, he's the, he's the weird ingredient that brings everything together. Um, have you been to his uh, restaurant? No, though it's actually pretty close to where I live. Yeah, I thought it was in the village, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, no, I, I haven't been to his restaurant, and my scheming to somehow get him together with my dog, who is <laughs> as beautiful as Anthony. Uh, uh, let's see here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this is Boswell. Uh, this is Boswell. Um this has come to not also, uh, but, um, hi, sorry to disturb you. So is, is, uh, is Boswell the dog version of Anthony? Well, or, or is Boswell I, more useful than Anthony is? I, I think he's more useful. <laughs> um, one time somebody climbed up the fire escape outside my apartment and broke on to an apartment above me. And I credit, I credit Boswell with uh they were they were afraid of you <laughs> uh but um but i think uh yeah there's not one of them that actually it's probably true that if any of them left i'd stop watching the show now that i think about it <laughs> they uh, do have a good um like camaraderie they seem to generally like each other maybe maybe that's yeah. just good acting but like they supposedly actually do live in this loft you know, in whatever city, the first two seasons were in Atlanta. This new season is in Kansas City. Um, you know, like they seem to actually live together and like enjoy each other's company and 
you know, they always show them like dancing around and roughhousing and stuff like that. <laughs> so it seems fun. Um, it seems like they are enjoying themselves. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, check out the show. Yeah. Check it out on Netflix. The first episode is one of the, I think actually the best ones with the, the, the truck driver. The truck driver. Yeah. Trying to get back with think... his, one of his ex-wives. Yeah. When you watch it, I think you're really bracing yourself for them to make fun of him for being poor and kind of, uh, redneckish and so on and uh they just don't and that's kind of what sets the tone for everything else yeah uh, it's always positive it's actually usually the um the guy is critiquing himself saying like you know I, yeah. i'm so i've gotten so fat or you know my I, my skin looks like shit and then yeah the, the, truck the guys are like saying no you're great you're great <laughs> yeah the truck driver's refrain is you can't fix ugly right I right think. And actually, so this will be my last last note about this, but um, after the first season, I read, I think it was after the first season, I read some piece that was trying to, like, problematize Queer Eye, which I feel shouldn't be that hard. But for some reason, what they fixated on was the fact that in the first episode, the truck driver has this kind of broken down chair and it's sort of smelly and so on. And... Um, and they have some sort of thing where he says goodbye to the chair and they get rid of the chair and then he gets a new chair. And the person was like, there's no discussion of the fact that a truck driver like might not replace a broken chair because he can't afford to. And I just thought they're buying him a new chair. Like, it's yeah, not that's like the point of the show house. is that they yeah, have like a budget for new furniture. Stuff. Yeah. So like, it's not like they came into his house took his chair (laughs) and then left. I don't know. So that, that complaining that the show is giving people free things that they can't afford felt like (laughs) the, the truly the weirdest. Yeah, that is strange. It's kind of part of the genre of like a home makeover show is give you some free stuff. Um, And I mean, you know, they always kind of, they always kind of make it up at the very beginning of each episode. Like it's going to be some kind of surprise that they're showing up at these you know, to, yeah. to give these guys a, a total makeover, but like obviously they agreed to come on the show and record interviews beforehand about their lives. <laughs> so this is not like, you know, a total surprise. Like you kind of have to suspect uh, what's coming. I liked uh, the one in the most recent season where Anthony pretends to be a doctor and the rest of them are in a waiting room and they're all holding magazines about the TV show. Yeah, that like, was a yeah. There were just four magazines about your TV show just sitting. In the that was a weird one, and there was—I mean, maybe the most, honestly the like weirdest and most problematic uh, instance in the show was when Karma was driving. Oh the, yeah, that was the, really the truck, and got pulled over by the guy who turned out pulled over by a cop, and it turned out that the cop was like the guy who had nominated his fellow yeah. friend cop to be made over, but that was like. And they didn't really go into like kind of all the you know a black man driving in in Georgia like rural Georgia and being pulled yeah. over by a white cop. Also, in that season, they sort of tried to force political conversations in a way that they've maybe backed off of, which I think is frankly good for the guys as people. Like, because because in that episode, he Kirama has to be kind of like. I'm a black man, you're a policeman. <laughs> and the policeman's like, some policemen are bad, some policemen are good. Right. And, and uh, it's like, this is not the discussion of, of, of 
police violence anyone needs. Like making your your black star do this is just demeaning and weird. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and having him fake pulled over is, is beyond that. Uh, but, um, but yeah, anyway, yeah, I think, um, it is the closest I have, I think, to having a guilty pleasure. <laughs> uh, you know, it, but it's not, it's not, it's not trashy, like, I- yeah, no, you know, that's what I was gonna say. I don't, I don't actually consider it a guilty pleasure. Okay, so like I, I watch uh, Vanderpump Rules with my wife, and like that, oh, it, yeah. that's a guilty pleasure. Like that is pure trash. Yeah, um, I watched on your recommendation. I watched the first season of that because I was sick. Oh, right, all oh, right. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, th- I felt satisfied by that. Like maybe when I'm sick, I'll go back. But uh, yeah, it kind of, it kind of, it's very circular. Uh, for people who don't know, this is just a. Very silly Bravo reality show about um, a bunch of like models and actors who work at a restaurant, and yeah, it's it's like different people hooking up with each other, cheating on each other, with each other, getting in the same version of different fights over and over again. So it is kind of like a, a yeah. circular, a circular show. No one, no one really learns anything. Um, so yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. Well, and, thank you, uh... for, thank you for coming on. So you are um, you are BD McClay. You are on Twitter mm-hmm. at. Edie McClay, right? Edie McClay. And if you, uh, if you want more, to learn more about Boswell, um, follow P.T. McClay <laughs> on Twitter because you get to see lots of photos of Boswell. And, uh, He's a good and that, guy. And that's very entertaining. Uh, so uh, so thank you again for coming on. Thanks to thank all, all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. All right. Bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.